This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Hi for the wild community. Just a reminder that the episode you are about to listen to has an extended length version that is only available on our Patreon. To listen to the full-length edited conversation, join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash for the wild. Hello and welcome to For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I'm speaking with Samuel Batista Lazo. Our weavings are the way I see it, they're more than fabric. They are the living books of our ancestors. The patterns and symbols that we weave carry stories that are encoded in those uh, sacred geometrical forms that we have memorized. Dr. Samuel Bautista Lazo is a Benza Zapotec weaver from Teotitlan de Val, Oaxaca, Mexico. In 2013, he obtained his PhD in engineering from the University of Liverpool in the UK, doing research in the topic of sustainable manufacturing. Samuel's research focused on finding ways to help industry mimic nature, where there is no waste. He created tools that engineers can use to guide them in their approach to transform waste into profitable co-products that stay within industrial loops and help build a circular economy. After obtaining his PhD in the UK, Samuel decided to go back home and connect back with his community and family weaving heritage. Being back home struck a chord in his life and made him realize that his community was already practicing an ancient form of sustainable manufacturing that is still alive in the many craft traditions of the central valleys of Oaxaca and in the eight regions of his state. From this place, Samuel has rooted even more within his community and family weaving business, and from there, and through the language of the ancient textiles, he spends a great deal of time teaching, educating, and planting the seeds for creating a future that heals the relationship of humans with the web of life. Well, Samuel, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really lovely to be imagining speaking in different parts of the world, but still sharing similar views in a sense when we look out our window. I really appreciate that we're both with the land as they rest. Hello, Ayana. Let me greet you in Zapotec, Sakleshi, which means uh, with the blessing of the midday sun, as right now it's almost midday here, and uh, it's a pleasure, it's a blessing to be part of your project, to share this path, and we've crossed paths fortuitously, so I'm really happy that we can have this conversation from so far, like we said, and yet so close with the rhythms of nature. Mm, what a beautiful way to start. Thank you. <laughs> oh, goodness. I do wish we were together, though, and I wish I was where you were, even though I love winters in Alaska. But the first question I'm thinking about is as much for me as for our listeners, because I really want to, I just would love for you to paint a picture of where you are and your particular connection to the land in Oaxaca and maybe share some, some of the practices that connect you to place. I think in, in the West, in the literature, we're just beginning to understand how this continent got populated. But in our stories, my grandfather, my uh, mother's dad, he tells us stories when this valley where we uh, farm corn and milpa these days that it used to be a great lake and then it was like a swamp and uh, that takes us back at least uh, to the last ice age when this lake uh, was formed by 
ancient uh, glacier melt. And uh, I myself, you know, have always been curious about our past and I've been trying to read as much as I can. And even more recently with uh, native scholars writing about our own history from a native perspective and with recent findings uh, in a place called uh, Mitla, in Zapotec, it's called Liuba. There is some prehistoric caves that show, you know, paintings, handprints that date to about uh, 10,000 years ago. And around there, there is a canyon where um, they found bones of mammoths, ancient horses, prehistoric horses and camelids that uh, our ancestors were probably hunting around that ancient lake, uh, you know, who knows, 20,000, 25,000 years ago, that's still, you know, being understood and measured with uh, the way science works. But the way we keep our records is with stories. So we live in this, uh, it's called the Central Valley of Oaxaca. And uh, this is where most of um, the Zapotec uh, original towns were founded. And um, I live um, right in front of the sacred peak that's called Quiayabets. Uh, which means the sacred uh, vulture peak. And um, I didn't, you know, just recently I came to the realization of what this means. I was listening to this audiobook of um, Talking Sand and uh, this Aboriginal uh, from Australia, native from Australia, was telling the story of how their people also uh, kept those stories of how the ancient burials in the last ice age were done at these peaks that are uh, these rocky peaks where uh, they practice what's known as sky burials, like they do in Nepal, I think, where at the end of uh, someone's life cycle, their bodies are offered um, to the vultures to be taken towards the sky. And... Uh, and, you know, I came to that realization, oh, this is why our mountain is called Kiyayavets, because they were probably practicing those sky burials back then. And uh, a lot of those ceremonies have been uh, erased since the arrival of the Spanish and with the imposition of the new religion in our culture. So right now there is uh, two crosses on top of this mountain. But yet the mountain is honored. On every May the 3rd, the whole town celebrates and climbs this mountain. They, uh, there is a brass band that climbs up to the top. There is races to the top and they share food and music. And everybody gathers there, just like in ancient times when our people hunt and gathered around these mountains, probably, you know, gathering acorns, processing acorns, and hunting for, for uh, meat, deer, rabbits. So the Central Valley is surrounded by, in the north part, by the Sierra, Sierra Madre del Norte, the uh, northern Sierras. And in the northern Sierras, they get up to about um, 3,200 meters, which is about 10,000 feet above sea level. And then um, that mountain range receives all the ocean currents and winds from the Gulf of Mexico. And then as it comes down into the valley, it comes down to about 5,000 feet. So you can imagine all the transition of ecosystems where at the top of this mountain range, we have like nine types of pine trees, Douglas firs, ferns, and lots of um, biodiversity. And then as we're coming down into the valley, the landscape change changes. Uh, it goes to a low deciduous forest. And then at the valley, it's very dry. You know, it's almost a little like a desert bush kind of area with a lot of cacti, agaves, and so we're blessed to live, you know, in this, in this uh, diverse ecosystem. 
And then we have the valley where we're located right now. Uh, my town is called Teotitlan del Valle, and it's really well known for the weavings for our uh, traditions. And then as we go south, there is the southern sierras that rise up to close to 10,000 feet again, and then go down uh, to the Pacific coast. And uh, it's probably about 100 miles on a straight line. But if you were to drive from where we are to the Pacific, it takes about uh, seven hours on very windy roads. And then on the other side, we have uh, tropical forests with lots of mango trees and papayas and lush vegetation. So we got it all in this narrow stretch of land. That's the narrowest part of Mexico. Thank you so much for taking us through. I felt like I was floating above the land with you and um, totally transported to another place. And you brought up a few things in your response that I want to explore more. Of course, I want to talk about your weavings and your business, Dixa Rugs. And there's also something you mentioned. I think you were getting to maybe the topic of colonization in Mexico. And and I'd love to unpack some of that continued tension. In an interview you did with Of Sedge and Salt podcast, you mentioned the ways that colonization and globalization have forced changes to the ways you interact with the land. And so much of the insidious powers of colonization manifest at intensely local levels. So yeah, I'm just interested in hearing how noticing the particular details of state control affects your relationship to the complexities of indigeneity in Mexico. Yes, definitely. You know, that's something that we feel and it's changing the way we relate to the land. This happens because the government they push for a legal structure of land ownership, and that's definitely not part of our cosmovision. So the story of how our village got founded here on this particular piece of land is that this mountain that I was describing earlier, the sacred mountain, um, the uh, vulture peak, when our ancestors arrived to this mountain, the ancient spirit of, of a god, um, appear in the form of a Macau bird. And among thunder and clouds, uh, the spirit presented itself and um, gave this land for a community to take care of and to be the stewards of this land. But this was an act that was, you know, in front of the whole community. So I think that uh, from that cosmovision, from that story, the long has always the land has always been like stewarded to the community and everything that we manage uh, or every way in which we interact with the land it's communal up to this day even though the government is pushing for um like private titles that uh you know entitle you to a piece of land for, for your family or for your own person. The way these decisions are made is still in a community. We have uh, community meetings where we decide, uh, for example, uh, which newlyweds are uh, allowed a new plot of land to build their own house and grow their own food. Because sometimes for some or another reason, families, they have to sell their land or they split the land. And uh, and there is every time, every year, there's less and less available land, especially for uh, for growing corn, as you know, the best lands have already been taken. But still, this is a community affair, and this only you can only have access uh, to this community by being part of it, and also actually by intermarrying someone from the community, by being like intimately tied to the community. So that's the great advantage that we are still preserving. On the other hand, though, because there is this push for uh, everyone to get uh, land titles, and uh, the government has this um, 
or like um, in the folk tradition, we have this saying that says, la tierra es de quien la trabaja. The land belongs to those who work it. And this comes from the Mexican Revolution when um, the big haciendas uh, took over a lot of indigenous lands and then the farmers, the indigenous people fought back to have those lands, uh, to recover those lands in their hands. And because they were they were the ones working the land, plowing the land, harvesting, they they brought that they coined that term. Uh, the land belongs to those who work it. However, uh, this um, this phrase, I think it's um, altering a very particular way in which we were doing agriculture, which is that. Um, we used to farm a, pl a plot of land for, you know, about four to eight years. And then we would let that piece of land to rest for another 15 or 20 years. And uh, when we do that in this uh, Central Valley, a lot of mesquite trees and acacias grow, like uh, one tree is called uh, wamuchi, and also wisaches and uh, mesquites that have deep roots that, you know, break up the soil, fix nitrogen, create microclimates, create an incredible habitat for uh, many other birds and species of um, rabbits and other, uh, you know, animals to nest and flourish. But now because there is a push to be always working your land, then we stop giving that piece of land a period of rest which is the way in which we were practicing our ancient agricultural system. So I think that's, for example, one of the dangers in which uh, the federal government doesn't have a deep understanding of the way in which we have related to the land. So that nowadays, if you leave your land resting, you know, for more than 10 years, then you, in these communities, you run the risk of your little plot of land going back to the community but so now everybody is you know always constantly plowing their lands and and working the lands and also that's another reason is to always occupy our land and show signs of farming so that for example when mining companies want to show up they cannot just go and grab that piece of land because it's unused so when the land is being used for agriculture noticeably, then we have a we feel like we have a better chance of fighting and keeping the rights of ownership for that land. Yeah, that's really interesting on so many levels. And I know here in Alaska the mining issues are really potent and it seems like the economic argument is the one that's most listened to. Like if you can prove that the land is being used to make money in some other way, that's in a lot of ways the, the, best, <laughs> the best tactic to win. And it's sad to not allow the land to rest or be even to protect the land. Uh, you know, there's... It's so complicated what colonial capitalism has done and what even those of us who are land protectors have to do in order to play in this system. It's really complex, so I, I really appreciate learning more from you about that. And um, I also would love to hear about the Benza or cloud people and just hear about more you know more of your ancestry and continued presence on your ancestral land and how that shapes you and the resistance within asserting indigeneity and and even how that maybe relates to your work yeah yeah mm, well it's also been a a personal journey a life journey to as our ancestors said to discover my true face and my true heart because the process of colonization started with the big erasure of our culture. And when I grew up, I didn't have these answers. When I was a teenager, I was very confused. 
with the um, you know eurocentric uh culture being so strong on radio on tv you know you didn't see indigenous faces you didn't hear indigenous stories and uh and so it was a whole journey to recover this and uh and reconnect as well even though i live in a culture in a community that is so vibrant and that has its language its traditions we grow our corn according to the same cycles that our ancestors have always followed by reading the clouds and that's why we're the cloud people because in order to live on this particular piece of land in order to grow corn the way we do it we need to pay attention to the weather systems, to the clouds, and to the microclimate, to the very particular microclimate that corresponds to your plot of land. So in our community, in, in my village, I don't have um, like the square kilometers, but I would say that, you know, there is at least three or four major microclimates and everybody here has a little plot of land that's like about an hectare, maybe two hectares, half a hectare, which is like an acre. And, um, and everybody, you know, by generation after generation knows exactly, you know, when to plant corn because a two-week uh, time frame would make a huge difference in the corn that you harvest, if you plant too early or if you plant too late. So in this way, we're really connected to the land and to the heavens. So I often tell people, you know, when we plant corn, it's as if there was an umbilical cord going from our bodies, from our, our bellies to our navel that grounds us to the earth. And then that's connected to the root of the corn plant. And as we pray for the rains, as we study the clouds or prayers, you know, are elevated towards the clouds. And then when it rains, that feeds the ground again and feeds our bodies and feeds and answer. And when our prayers are answered in that way, there is a full circle, you know, a full connection between the earthly and the spiritual world. So... A lot of the ancient stories, a lot of the, for example, even the ancient calendar is based on the cycle of corn. And in that uh, indirect manner is how our, our stories and our knowledge has survived. I think anyone that plants corn, I call it in this spiritual way, I know in the in the west they call it dry farming but for us it's spiritual farming you know by listening to the voices of the clouds to the patterns of the clouds to the needs of the land uh, by uniting by weaving these two worlds together we uh, are connected to the tapestry of life and um, i think for all the indigenous farmers in the central valley this is how they relate to their ancestors, to the, their ancient culture. And when the spell breaks, it might break your fall. But when the fall stands, the heart still it falls. thinking about how your ancestors are nourishing the land and the corn through the bones and the soil and yeah the cycle of life that 
so many of us now in modern cultures are taken away from that cycle that's so beautiful and nourishing and I I really love being reminded of that and yeah I do really want to talk about your weavings and I think it would be interesting to hear how is the land specifically fostered your continued connection to crafts like weaving and how this this practice really taps into something so connected to human life over the past thousands of years and yeah just how that influences your ideas of deep time and ancestry and gosh I have so many questions on this maybe I'll just pause (laughs) and let you take it away for now yeah definitely um I mean weaving has been uh, so much part of our history here in my village that we um we've come to specialize in in this activity but I think before weavers were all farmers and then we weave when it's too hot to be working outside or when it's raining too much. Every village around here in the Central Valley specializes in a craft. And um, this craft has been exacerbated and or more has become more specialized through the passing of time especially since uh, the period of the Aztecs when they, uh, the Mexicas, because they never called themselves Aztecs, when the Mexicas um, took over control of the ancient trade routes that connect, I've heard they connect Alaska all the way to Nicaragua and further south. But anyway, uh, they imposed taxes and tributes uh, to these towns and uh, our town was... uh, taxed with this tribute uh, we were weaving I think like 600 loads of cotton clothes that were being uh, sent to Tenochtitlan nowadays Mexico City other towns were you know specialized in uh, the production of uh, for example uh, leather sandals or leather goods especially in the northern mountains where they have access to oaks and tannins and barks to tan other towns specializing in clay and other towns specializing in basketry weaving. And then um, every other day we meet uh, on a main market around the Central Valleys to trade so that within, you know, a, a very, like within the Central Valley, we can produce most of the uh, objects that we need to live. So anyway, uh, or, or weaving, or weaving, uh, heritage um you know goes back it's recorded uh in ancient times the older uh the oldest uh objects uh that have been found are made with agave fibers there were some sandals woven out of agave fibers and there's also of course sisal um sisal ropes and other objects other, um, I think they call them thumb lines, which are like strips of fabric that you would use to carry heavy weights um, you know, aided by your forehead. And uh, those, those are other objects that have been found um, around here in the archaeological record. And, but I think, you know, uh, when I've been speaking to people, I've been uh, teaching at uh, uh, what they call the primitive and ancestral skills gatherings and or human relation to fi- to fiber, you know, is so old that I imagine that when our ancestors arrived here during the last ice age, they were also gathering um, the wool from the woolly mammoths, you know, to insulate their gloves and their uh, their boots. So, so just thinking about those ancient uh, connections, it's uh, really reassuring, really nourishing when we are weaving. Because even to this day, for example, the word for cotton is shil, and the word for sheep is the same word, it's shil. So even though the sheep was brought by the Spanish, the word that we use for that fiber is the same word that we use for cotton, because they uh, 
they are processed in the same way with the same steps. And, you know, I, I also imagine that weaving a ship's wool wouldn't be that much more different than probably processing woolly mammoth's wool, you know? <laughs> so that connection is, is deep in time, as you say. And, um, and I've come to believe, I come to realize as well that um, in order to heal our relationship with, with the planet, with the different rhythms of the planet, and the different, uh, what uh, they call the life supporting systems. We need to heal our relationship just like we're doing. We need to heal our relationship with our food, with our clothing. And, and that's where weaving takes uh, a big part. You know, we need to look back to that, uh, to that skill that we've delegated to factories, you know, that we've, um, as you know, developed countries uh, with, um, or when we buy uh, industrially made fabrics, you know, we've delegated to other parts of the world that are also suffering, you know, from those uh, extractive uh, practices. So, so I think that's where our weaving medicine comes in. And that's where also we've opened up our workshop and our family business to to share this skill with the world and to tell our story. Our weavings are, the way I see it, they're more than fabric. They are the living books of our ancestors. The patterns and symbols that we weave carry stories that are encoded in those uh, sacred geometrical forms that we have memorized. And uh, they call for a for living a life of balance, for living a life that's connected with nature, that calls for clothing ourselves with the fibers that we gather around, that we can grow, that we can die with the plants that surrounds us, with plants that, uh, that carry medicine, with plants that heal our bodies, the plants that nourish our skin, that's a sponge that's absorbing all these molecules that clothes ourselves with clothes that respect uh, the makers, with clothes that speak to us and that speak to the future, with clothes that carry those stories of the past. I think uh, our, our society right now is at a turning point where we need to listen to the voice of our ancestors. We need to um, reconnect to that voice. And um, the more I meditate on these patterns and symbols, the more I've also come to know them and see them, you know, around the world and see how the patterns that we weave are the same that uh, the, the Incas are weaving, the same that people in Nepal are weaving. I've seen uh, patterns that we weave that are so similar to, to some Mongolian uh, felted uh, rugs and uh, patterns that we weave that are similar to patterns that the Ainu people are, are weaving. And so, you know, it takes me back. And I feel like these are like ancient stories that we carried probably, you know, since we left Africa who knows, 60 or 70,000 years ago, uh, when scientists say that we're probably 10,000 humans exploring uh, new ecosystems. And, uh, and this really amazes me, you know, the way in which these patterns are so universal. Because sometimes people say that these patterns are created by the greed that's created with the weft and the warp that allows us to weave, you know, triangles and squares easily. But then with other techniques like Mongolians, you know, felting and tufting the rugs and making different, like, you know, have, using a very different technique to create the very same pattern. Or when the patterns are also painted on pottery, which is really hard uh, to, to paint geometrical symbols on a round pottery tells us, you know, that uh, there is more than coincidence to the fact that we're all creating similar patterns. Because at the end of the day, too, 
these patterns are built into our hands, into our bodies. For example, of the cycle of life pattern that uh, is obtained by joining the hands, you know, at the fingers, uh, almost like a mudra, you know, and creating a little spiral. And all those patterns are built into our bodies, are built into, into um, yeah, the fractals of nature. And, uh, and that's what we keep weaving yeah, for thousands of years. We keep carrying those stories. Yeah, that's... <laughs> I feel redundant, but I just keep wanting to point out the beauty in your responses and feel like they're definitely reminding me and hopefully the listeners too of what it is to be human again I think it's gotten so confusing and we are conditioned to feel so far from source and truth and um, so much of what you're saying feels like it's connecting back to something that feels real and I think it's really brave in a sense and I want to hear more from you too of how you feel but that the that you share your culture and share your weavings and I'm interested on how to decide when to share culture in an interview with um Thara Watt magazine you say quote it's a fine balance no question but sharing always came naturally to us when we would go to the market to sell a rug, we would always invite people to see our town. We're proud of the sacred mountain. We love to show them the remnants of an ancient sacred site that preserves some of the motifs that we still weave, end quote. And, um, and then you continue saying, quote, in the past, we were more secretive about our weaving techniques. We thought about our centuries-long stewardship of these techniques meant that we had to protect them, that they were ours exclusively. However, I believe that our craft must now be shared with the world because weaving is central to the human experience and not just to our culture. I wish to share that wisdom to help make this a better world one thread at a time, end quote. So I'm, I'm just really interested on how you balance claiming culture with sharing it, especially in a time when it seems that so much of culture is either forcibly commercialized or, on the other hand, made to seem antiquated or even culturally appropriated or stolen. Yeah, yeah, I think um, I see that in our community. Um, and it's really coming from a place of fear, you know, that we lose our craft, that, um, you know, that our designs get, you know, patented by some other company because it has happened you know it has and and it's it's happened like there is ikea rugs that look exactly like like our designs or like you know south american inca designs or you know navajo hopi Diné designs and you know they're just blatantly weaving socks and rugs and other goods that are industrially produced with those ancient symbols and stories and yet no no credit or let alone any retribution is given to any of uh, of our uh, uh, cultures or societies so yeah you know people people are afraid of that but i think on the other hand too you know if we don't carry on this this message if we don't um share this medicine if we uh don't let people have the experience to to gather things from the wild and to transform them with their hands and their heart into sacred objects you know i think we people won't have that opportunity to experience that because um i think you know i think that's the only form of like slow living or that's that's the purest form of uh, like you know sustainable living because imagine I imagine our grandmothers you know they they spent like close to a year to make a wipil you know which is a the traditional uh, dress that they wove they would weave it on the backstrap loom and that act of weaving is more of a ritual rather than an activity 
or, or a, let alone a production method, weaving was done by women uh, in a ritual way when they would sit on the ground and tie one end of the loom to their womb, you know, to their uh, waist. And then the other end of the loom is tied to a tree that represents the cosmic tree of creation where all the souls of the people are uh, living before uh, reincarnating into this reality. So in fact, in the very act of weaving, uh, women are bringing together um, heaven and earth on their tapestry, on the tapestry of life with the materials that they've gathered on the earth. And so when you weave something like that, you know, when you spend a year weaving a piece of garment that will last you a lifetime, that you can inherit to your daughters and granddaughters, then those objects, you know, become sacred. They become magical. They have power. They have voice. And uh, and I think um, that's, that's where we should steer our societies towards. Uh, sometimes I see a lot of greenwashing in the fashion industry, you know, and uh, I think in order to, um, for the world, you know, we're like 7 billion people on this earth and in order for, to clothe everyone, in order to uh, provide for everyone, we need to um, to empower ourselves again and to to connect, you know, with those ancient skills, to connect with our environment and to keep sharing these stories so that this becomes the new story, the new, um, the new story that we choose to believe that clothes should be more sacred, should be produced in this way, instead of you know, the, the cheap $5 shirt that's available everywhere and that you could throw away you know, in a few months. fast fashion is not only spiritually bankrupting us and taking us away from a deep connection to source, but it's obviously ecologically horrendous to the earth, um, let alone all of the human rights violations and slavery that it encompasses. It's, yeah, the fashion industry time and time again is just... Gosh, it's really insidious and destructive. And the more the more I've learned about it, the, I guess I shouldn't be shocked at this point. But <laughs> when you hear the numbers of how much damage it's doing to people and places, it's really it's hard to take in. And yet, in so many places, that's what's being offered because culture has been to for so many pe- people they've been removed from their cultures, and so. I think what you're sharing revitalizes us to remember again, especially for those of us who've lost our way. Um, remember again that there was a time where we all were connected to our clothes and they were ceremonial and they meant something and they weren't just something to buy and throw away and um, end up in a landfill somewhere. So yeah, I appreciate you you speaking to that and reminding us of that power. And I think I, I think it was Martine Prechtel or some, somebody I interviewed at the very beginning of the podcast. And I remember them Mm. talking about dressing for the divine. And that's Mm. something that always stuck with me that when I 
you know, get dressed in the morning. Of course, you know, sometimes functionality matters, especially when Mm -hmm. you're going out into some weather or going to be doing something rough, but that it's an expression. It, it, It can be an expression to connecting with the divine, connecting with the land, connecting to what we love. And I really connected with that and it just opened up a whole other realm for me. But uh, gosh, I I do want to go back a bit and back to the thread of how to decide to share your culture, but also how rural places can support themselves without having to extract. And this is something I see so much here in Alaska, um, down, you know, in a lot of rural communities where there's so much pressure on economic development, economic growth, and so that in a lot of ways is why these big multinational corporations with their fracking or mining or fossil fuel extraction, I think why they build trust in small communities sometimes because when folks are desperate mm-hmm. to make money mm-hmm. uh, and then they're being told by this big company that they're going to be able to have a you know sustainable or yeah. long-term financial or economic growth. It's something that people cling to. And so um, I'm just really fascinated with this yeah. for so many reasons. And again, in the the first podcast interview you did with of Sedge and Salt, you discuss mm-hmm. the varying effects of tourism in your hometown. And mm-hmm. I'd be interested in hearing more about the various challenges that come from having to present an image of culture and life to outsiders. And just also maybe detailing the challenges and benefits of tourism because I know in the rural communities I've been in, even though it seems like tourism would be better than mining, which I think in in certain ways it is, it can also mm-hmm. be its own form of extraction, both culturally, yeah. ecologically, also just people coming in to buy up land, speculate, mm-hmm. speculative investors. So mm-hmm. yeah, just I'd love to hear your take on that. Yes, you know, yeah, tourism and mining, I mean, they have the same goal, which is to create capital to you know increase gains and uh it's it is a dangerous uh uh window you know in in the way we've opened maybe 60 years ago when my dad was you know a young a young uh, child everybody here kind of lived on the same economic level you know everybody had adobe homes everybody was planting corn just living a really um, egalitarian life, you know, we were, we were like doing the same. And then with, uh, with tourism opening up uh, and arriving into our town when they built the airport and highway, and when more and more people started to come into our town, they got really interested in our rugs as a craft that they could import and sell in the U.S., uh, especially because the rugs are easy to transport and um, they're used to decorate homes and that. But, you know, within, like, the last 50 years, you know, there is uh, now a noticeable degree of uh, economic difference between families. So families that happen, maybe happen to have... Uh, the early connections with buyers or families that happen to have land at the entrance of our village or or in the center of our town, you know, they've benefited more from tourism than others on the on the outskirts of town. So so yeah, just I've seen maybe my generation as I grew up, you know, those inequalities started to widen and widen. And now I see them as real. And that's that's just like um, the economic game that we've opened up to. Um, I read in history books, you know, how um, the early friars to write about our towns or villages, they were surprised that our ancestors or or elders, they they didn't see the value of money, you know, especially in the early days. <laughs> the joke is that. Why would Europeans take these beautiful uh, sculptures made out of gold and melt them into ugly lingots of metal? 
we were answering like why why would you store you know all this silver and gold uh in fact uh the feather dance the that we performed to pray for the rain they use coins more of a decoratory element on their chest <laughs> instead of using it for trade you know it's used like as a as an element of decoration in our uh, regalia and uh people didn't used to use didn't need to use money um when my father and my grandpa they built their house they were still using tekio which is uh, or sorry um it's actually gelagetza um which we say in zapotec calgas which is um kind of like a structured formal um way of uh, helping each other uh today for me tomorrow for you so when they build their house you know they listed a few neighbors and friends to help them out uh build the house put the roof and when their turn was to build their homes you were you're obliged societally you know with this uh, societal structure of the galagetza you're obliged to pay back in time and effort for what you have received so people didn't actually need to use money uh for a long time and uh i don't know maybe started in the 40s when um the economic pressures started to force us to to get into this economic system and probably it had to do with the droughts that we we uh we do suffer in this valley from time to time there's different cycles of droughts and uh yeah when people are hungry then you know it's time to to use money and um people started to emigrate to the US and to work in the fields there and uh to accumulate capital and then when they they would come back to our village they would have uh, just more money to spend to build their houses to buy the necessities of life and so but now recently um i mean in my generation uh we are think um i think we're in this economic system fully in and uh and we are trying to keep it balanced you know i think that um the money that comes into our village from tourism it it goes back to the community it goes back <laughs> in in a way that strengthens our identity people mostly they do spend money on uh, you know on having the comforts of life because at the end of the day we do want to you know also enjoy in the comforts of modern life you know have hot water and have have a truck to to do your farm chores and and have a tv or have you know have have the comforts of life so people are looking towards that but not necessarily you know we're not in a race to become like the richest rug seller or the richest you know rug dealer in town i mean some people might but i don't think that's the spirit of our community what's happening with all the income that we get from our rugs we have more you know bigger <laughs> weddings you know more like more brass bands we have like uh, bigger festivals uh you know we have uh, bigger parades or every uh fam- family gathering you know involves more and more people and uh, the day of the death you know it's even bigger it's celebrated uh, in a you know with with more um with more music with more um with more food and so i think uh at the end of the day uh what we value you know it's it's the well-being of our families of our community and of our own health so so it is a dangerous game for sure because uh that's what capitalism does and it corrupts people and it's very easy to get greedy but we have some uh, checks in place for example in our um local uh traditions and customs to elect um the mayor or to elect um the 
we don't have them anymore, but they're called mayordomos, which is like um, a, a person that uh, pays for the for the like the patronage of the festivities of the town, of the village, of the saint of the village. So usually when they see somebody making lots of money, they'll name them mayordomo. So they have to spend a lot of money to pay for the village party and festivities. And in that way, you know, it's like a way of keeping a balance between uh, people that are uh, amassing more money. However, that that has kind of worked a little bit against our favor because by becoming a mayordomo, uh, you gain more social status. And then by gaining more social status, you are more uh, eligible to be um, a member of the town council. And unfortunately, um, well, corruption uh, was very prevalent in Mexico. I think up until this uh, presidency, where at least in the discourse, we have had a strong discourse against corruption, so much so that uh, for this local um, town council that just finished governing our village, uh, we had a major fight to uh, kick them out because of some corruption uh, practices that they fell into. And uh, the whole village embarked in a legal battle and even we had to close the freeway for three days to have our rights recognized by the state authorities uh, because we as a community decided to kick out uh, the corrupt uh, council and um, and uh, and put a new uh, new uh, major in so um, so yeah i mean we we we're living this you know we're living it in our community and we're trying to to keep it uh balanced to keep it up you know pure um because money is at the end of the day it's just um a tool you know our ancestors use uh cacao seeds that's a type of cacao seeds to trade because um they didn't want people to store you know those coins they wanted they wanted them to to share them. They wanted that to circulate. And um, and for us, uh, markets are sacred. You know, markets are the place where we gather as a community, where we gather with other communities to meet each other, to trade our goods, to trade to trade the the blessings of our lands, the the magic that we've created with our hands. And uh, it's great to meet people, you know, in the markets. And um, that's kind of how how I grew up um, and how my mother grew up too. Uh, she came from a family of butchers and they were always at the markets doing, doing their um, selling meats and that. So markets are so sacred that uh, the word for, uh, for market is here. And... Um, the word for the Pleiades is the ladies of the market, Benhia. And um, the name of our village, uh, I come to believe, you know, it's related to that. In Zapotec, our village is called Shihie, which is like um, the day of the market or the day of the Pleiades, because also um, the sacred peak, the sacred mountain that I mentioned before, it aligns with the Pleiades around the, the New Year's in our ancient calendar that falls around the 19th or 20th of November. So at the end of the day, you know, um, I think what we need to do is to bring back sacredness to the markets, to the things that we do, to our crafts, to our lives, to our bodies. Gosh, Samuel, I could stay with you on this call so much longer and continue. And I could speak for four hours. <laughs> okay, so maybe we'll have to have a follow-up then because there's a lot more to um, get into here. But thank you so much for your time and your storytelling and for transporting us, definitely transporting me to another place and to a type of 
connection to deep time and human nature. It's felt really good to talk to you. Thank you so much for this opportunity, Ayana. Thank you so much. And uh, and yeah, and this is why we open up so that we can inspire people, you know, to connect with their own roots, with their own communities, with their own environment. And we all inspire each other, you know, also by uh, welcoming so many guests from different parts of the world. I've seen my parents too, you know, be exposed to other cultures and to to be curious about other people about other languages about other places so so yeah i think that's the beauty of connection thank you for listening to for the wild podcast the music you heard today was by marie sue for the wild is created by ayana young erica ekram francesca glassbell and julia jackson 